Well, you probably have not heard of an author by the name of Simon Sinek. Uh, Simon Sinek uh, is a guy who writes books on how to teach uh, teams how to function better, to, to be better teams together. Uh, and so his most recent book is called Leaders Eat Last. Leaders Eat Last. Uh, and so the, the birth of this book was, uh, he, he, he noticed that there are some teams, uh, when you get them together, whether it's a team of people who have to work together or whenever a team of people is trying to accomplish something for the Lord uh, or for any particular purpose, he noticed that, that on some teams, uh, they really function well together. They'd almost like give up their lives, die for each other. That's how well these teams functioned. Whereas on the other hand, he would see teams that were completely dysfunctional uh, and they were always out for themselves. No matter what uh, seemed to be the goal, they were never able to achieve it. They were, they were uh, doomed uh, from the outset. And so Cynic asked the question, why? What is it that makes some teams function so much better than other teams? And so Cynic uh, had the opportunity to, to interview uh, this Marine general uh, by the name of George Flynn. George Flynn. And he asked uh, General Flynn, uh, what is it uh, about you uh, and, uh, that, that makes your team uh, able to function so well? And he said, it's really simple. It's really simple. Officers eat last. Officers eat last. Cynic said, what? Officers eat last? That's it? That's the whole thing? And they took uh, Cynic into the mess hall and he showed him what he meant. And there in the mess hall, he saw that the privates were lined up first at the chow hall and they're getting the best cuts of meat and all the bread and all the higher ranking uh, uh, officers were lined up behind them. And by the time they got to the front, there may not have been the best food left. Uh, but this was a simple uh, visual uh, lesson that, uh, that, that the uh, general was teaching uh, the, the lower ranked people uh, and, and they loved him for it, right? They would run through walls for him. They'd kill for this guy. They'd die for this guy uh, because he held to this simple motto that leaders eat last. And so what a model of servanthood and discipleship. And, you know, Jesus, of course, was the greatest servant leader uh, that the world had ever seen. And as we uh, progress here in chapter 10, what we see is Jesus leading uh, the disciples into Jerusalem, uh, a place that was fraught with danger, for Jesus, and he knew what was going to happen. And so we're going to see that they're on the road, they're on the road to Jerusalem, and what is going to happen when they get there. Now we know that the theme of Mark, we've discussed this many times throughout the book, is that the theme is who is, what is a disciple? What does a disciple look like? And so Jesus is continuing to model for them as he goes on the road that, that, the, that the life of a, a disciple is, is service, sacrifice, uh, subordination. All of these things are what a true disciple does uh, in, in the world as they, as they lead uh, people. So let's begin with verses 32 to 34 and see what's happening here. This is Jesus' third prediction of his death. Uh, 32, uh, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. Behold, he said, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So the first thing we see is Jesus leading uh, these people, right? There, there are some who are, you know, kind of watching along the way, and then he's leading the disciples. And so we get this picture of Jesus out in front of the rest of the group, and he's, he's steadfastly marching on to Jerusalem. 
And we understand why the disciples are fearful. They're lagging behind because they know what could happen to him there. They had seen that the scribes and Pharisees had tried to kill Jesus on multiple occasions and because they were going into Jerusalem. That's the lion's den. That's where these people are. And so they knew uh, what was potentially ahead of them. So you have Jesus leading, you have them lagging behind. And so Jesus, he either has to turn back to them or stop and wait for them to catch up. And then he gives them uh, this teaching. Uh, And now this is actually the third prediction that Jesus makes about his own death. We've seen this three times now, this repeating pattern in Mark where, where Jesus predicts his death and then the disciples have no understanding of it. They either say or do something stupid. And then, the, then Jesus has to correct them with a teaching moment. So remember in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus when he says he's going up to Jerusalem to be killed. And, and uh, Jesus has to pull him aside and correct him and then give him this teaching. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. So that's the teaching in Mark 8. Then Mark 9, remember, the disciples are arguing amongst themselves. Uh, uh, which one of us is the greatest as they're walking uh, from uh, northern Galilee down into Capernaum? They're having this argument. And Jesus, of course, gets wind of this argument and, and his advice to them, his, his teaching to them at that point is, whoever among you wants to be uh, first has to be last because uh, what makes someone great is service and sacrifice, not uh, being glorified by human uh, values, what, what people think are important. So now we come to this third uh, time, the third prediction of Jesus' death. And now, you know, he's much closer to Jerusalem now. Uh, he's he's, he's going to be there in very little, little time. And so his death is much more imminent Uh, And so what we get here in this third prediction is a much more detailed uh, version of what is going to happen. And it's much more gruesome when we look at it. So uh, what we see here for the first time is is who Jesus is going to be delivered to. He's going to be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. Now, these are the very people who should have been the most excited about Jesus coming, right? Because they knew their scriptures. They knew that their Messiah was coming. They knew the kinds of things that the Messiah would do because they knew the, gospel, or the, the, uh, the uh, scriptures. Isaiah, for example, uh, talking about how he would free the captives and uh, give sight to the blind and give uh, voice uh, and, and hearing to the deaf. Uh, Jesus did all these things. So, so these people should have been the most excited about his coming. And yet we find that they, they misunderstand understand him and his message the most. And so uh, rather than welcome him, uh, they see him as somebody who is uh, a heretic and somebody who is a threat uh, to their position. So the chief priests and scribes don't welcome him. He gets turned over into their hands. And then they are going to turn him over in turn to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles are the Romans, right? The Romans are the people who are, who are in power at that time. And Jesus says, what they're going to do is they're going to turn me over and they are going to mock me, spit on me, scourge me, and they are going to eventually kill me. Now, it is unfathomable uh, to me uh, that anybody could spit on and mock Jesus, the Son of God, right? Uh, but they simply didn't understand who he was. Uh, They didn't know who he was uh, or the significance of his presence. Uh, But scourging is a whole other matter. Now, this is the first time that Jesus has mentioned scourging in any of the three predictions uh, that he had given about his upcoming death. 
Well, what is scourging? Uh, completely unimaginable suffering uh, to me. They would, they would chain uh, the man's hands together, and then they would chain that chain to a whipping post, and he would be barebacked uh, at that whipping post where a torturer would hold a leather whip. So the whip has a handle, and then there are straps coming off that handle uh, of leather, and they were embedded with little pieces of rock or glass or metal or anything sharp that they could get their hands on, and then they would whip the back of that person who was deemed to be tortured. And when the, when the strap wrapped around that person's body, it would grab hunks of flesh, and it would rip flesh right off the body. I mean, that is unimaginably painful, and, and I have no idea how anybody even survived a scourging. And yet Jesus says he's going to be scourged, and then he's going to be killed. And so this is what happens when he gets handed over to the Gentiles. And so when Jesus makes a prediction like that uh, to his apostles who have been following him for three years, naturally the thing you would expect is that they would say, no, Lord, this cannot happen to you. Let's not go to Jerusalem. Let's do anything else. How can we stop this from happening? But that's not what happened, is it? Uh, they say something completely uh, what, what we would call a clueless or tone deaf. They, they have just the wrong conception of what they ought to say next. And so here is what they say next, verses 35 to 40. Then James and John, the sons, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus said, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup uh, I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong for those whom they have been prepared. So can you imagine uh, Jesus giving this uh, testimony about what is about to happen to him, and this is the next thing out of the disciples' mouth? That is completely unbelievable to me. And I wonder, in, if I were in their shoes, would I have done the same thing? Uh, would I have been as clueless as they are? Uh, it shows that, that uh, the, the human desire for glory and for status, uh, they're trying to ride Jesus' coattails uh, to the best of positions in uh, the kingdom. So it's absolutely shocking in context. You know, if, if, if he had asked that, if they had asked that question, you know, somewhere out on the road when Jesus, uh, you know, wasn't on his way to Jerusalem and made that prediction, you know, maybe you could understand it. But right after that, in that context, absolutely shocking request. Uh, so this is James and John, right? These are the two sons of Zebedee. Uh, Jesus handpicked these two as his apostles, and he made them part of even his inner circle, his inner circle of 12. These were two out of the three in the inner circle. Uh, Jesus nicknamed these two the, the sons of thunder, you may remember, and this, this tells us something about their, their, their character, their personality, right? They were brash. They were bold, they were impulsive, uh, even vengeful at times as they asked uh, Jesus, can we call down fire and brimstone on these nasty Samaritans who would not welcome us, right? Uh, this is G uh, James and John's, and uh, their, this their personality. And so uh, here we see them acting with, with uh, great ambition. Uh, they're ambitious to receive uh, the best seats in the kingdom. And what it shows is that uh, their ambition blinded them. They were so focused on what they could get in Jesus' kingdom that they missed everything that Jesus had just said and all that he had been teaching. 
So they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom, first of all, right? The, the, the nature of the kingdom is that the kingdom is not a, an earthly kingdom where Jesus is going to sit in some, you know, imagined throne chair with, with one on the left and one on the right, you know, judging and, and whatever it is that they thought that they were going to be doing. That's not the nature of the kingdom Jesus brought. Je Jesus was bringing a spiritual kingdom. And that kingdom wasn't a, a now fully visualized and realized kingdom. The kingdom would come later. It comes now in Jesus, but it comes later at Jesus' second coming. So they understand none of this, and they completely miss and misunderstand what Jesus had said about his own death and resurrection. They completely miss that. So we, we're, we're left with this ambition of James and John. And you know, ambition is a good thing if it's used for the right things, right? It's good to be ambitious if we wanted to use that ambition to, to do things for the kingdom of God, to, to lift God up, to advance his kingdom. Uh, even in the secular world, like to, to, uh, to, to get a good career to feed your family, to, to make a little extra money so you can give more to the kingdom, all that kind of ambition is good. But ambition that, that is outside of God's will, that is doing things contrary to God's will, that's bad ambition, self-seeking, self-serving ambition. That kind of ambition is not good, and it's not healthy. And we see it here in James and John, right? We said uh, they were in the inner circle of disciples, right? First, he had chosen them two out of 12 of all the people he could have chosen uh, in Israel. He chose these 12, uh, and they were two of them. And not only that, they were two of the inner three, the inner circle of disciples. And yet still, that's not enough for them, right? They still want more. They want more. And that is the problem with ambition sometimes. So I, think, I think half the problem with, with ambition is it shows that we are dissatisfied with God's provision. Like he hasn't given us enough. We want more. We want more. And for James and John, being in this inner circle of three wasn't enough. They wanted to squeeze out Peter and get those two good seats, right? And then Peter, he'd be on the outs. And the other nine, they'd be on the outs. Uh, John and James. They get the two best seats. So that's what we see uh, from these guys. And so uh, they clearly didn't understand uh, the mission. And so they don't understand the nature of the kingdom. And what Jesus is teaching them is that, look, what you guys are trying to do is you're trying to leap right to glory uh, and skip over the suffering part, which, you know, we can't blame him for that. Nobody wants to suffer. But Jesus taught repeatedly over and over again that the way to glory is through suffering. It's through suffering, and the way to greatness is, is through sacrifice and service and submission and subordination. Uh, it, it's not through exalting yourself and grabbing the best seats in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says to them uh, then that uh, you, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink? Well, this cup and this baptism, these are metaphors that Jesus was using for the, the suffering that he was about, about to endure. Uh, now, they should have known the suffering he was about to endure because he just told them, and yet somehow they missed it. So Jesus was about to undergo uh, this, this grand suffering, uh, and it was a unique kind of suffering because uh, Jesus was going to suffer like no one else has ever suffered before. Not, not that nobody had ever been crucified uh, in Jerusalem, uh, because that was a daily occurrence, and scourging was a daily occurrence. Uh, these disciples had all seen it before. It was a common part of living under Roman rule in Jerusalem. But what was unique about Jesus' suffering is that here is God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, all power, all authority uh, he has, 
and yet he submits himself uh, to this suffering. Why does he do this? Well, he does it because it's God's will, first of all, and second of all, because it's the only way uh, that mankind can be redeemed from the penalty of sin. So Jesus is going to drink a cup, and it's a cup of God's wrath. It's a cup of God's wrath against the sin of the world. Uh, he's going to drink that cup. And that's what makes Jesus unique as, a, as a, a man who came and lived a perfect life that none of us could live, a sinless life. That's what qualified him to be the one who could drink this cup. No one else can drink the cup of God's wrath. Only Jesus' perfect life qualified him to do that. And so Jesus, just a few days uh, forward, will drink that cup of God's wrath. Now, as far as uh, James and John's cup, they would drink a cup. It's not the cup of God's wrath. There's only one cup of God's wrath, and only Jesus can drink it. But, but there is a cup that, that we're all required to drink sometimes uh, on the road of discipleship. Uh, we are going to suffer for the name of Christ if we're truly being disciples of Christ and truly living for him. And James and John would have to suffer. They would have a cup to drink. Now, we know from the Bible that they did drink a cup, right? Uh, Acts chapter 12 tells us that uh, Herod Agrippa uh, had James beheaded with the sword. Uh, so James was the first apostle to die, and that was the cup that he had to drink. Now, John wasn't killed, but he did drink a cup of suffering. He was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he spent years. Uh, John tells us this in Revelation chapter 1, that he was exiled to the island of Patmos for the preaching of the word. Uh, and then later in life, tradition tells us that he moved out of uh, Patmos back onto uh, Ephesus and that he died there in Ephesus. Uh, so they did drink the cup, uh, or they would drink the cup. They just didn't know what the cup would be yet. Now, it's interesting to me that, you know, James and John make this uh, outlandish request, uh, and yet Jesus doesn't rebuke them for it, right? He, he could have rebuked them for it, but he doesn't. He, 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 he tells them, look, we, I understand that you want these seats. Everybody wants earthly glory, but, but these seats are not mine to give, which I think is an interesting thing, right? Now, here is Jesus. He's God, right? What do you mean these seats aren't yours to give? Well, we know uh, from Philippians chapter 2, when that Jesus came, uh, he emptied himself. Well, what does that mean? Uh, not that he ever stopped being God in any way, but, but he did empty himself. He laid aside some of his divine prerogatives, some of his privileges as being God, and he left some of those things in God's hands. So he sometimes limited his power. He sometimes limited his knowledge. And it seems here that uh, by some agreement between God and Jesus, that, that God had reserved unto himself uh, the power to place people at the right and left hand uh, in the kingdom. And so that's probably uh, what's going on here. So uh, there is no rebuke, but yet Jesus denies that, that request because those seats aren't his to give. And so Jesus continues to teach them, you know, stop trying to seek glory for yourselves. Uh, glory for yourself is not going to come through an earthly kingdom. Uh, if you want glory, if you really want glory, then it's through service and sacrifice. That is the kind of, uh, of uh, leadership and, and suffering that, and sacrifice that God values. That is what makes someone great in God's eyes. And so uh, we've seen it throughout in this little section here where he who uh, wants to save his life has to lose it. He who wants to be first has to be last of all. That's what we see going on here in uh, this passage and in the previous passages. Now, I do want to give James and John some credit because 
You know, they're asking this question, and they completely show their cluelessness. But, but we, we have to remember that after Jesus did die and rose from the dead, uh, James and John became apostles in the sense that they were the sent ones. They were sent out. They carried the gospel uh, from here to there, and they suffered greatly uh, for their faith. And so uh, while Jesus lived, while they were on earth, they had this earthly view of what it means to be great. But after Jesus died and rose from the dead, after they witnessed all that happened in Gethsemane and then on the cross and then the 40 days after the resurrection, they realized what true apostleship meant, and they learned that lesson. Uh, but for now, they're still mired in this cluelessness, trying to get uh, this earthly kingdom for themselves. And so they're learning, or they will learn, that, that the way to greatness is through service and sacrifice, not through somebody exalting you or trying to exalt yourself. So they make this request of Jesus, and, and uh, Jesus denies this request, and now trouble is really going to break loose because the other ten get wind of what uh, John and James had just asked Jesus. So let's see what they say about this in verses 41 to 44. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Slave of all. So, First of all, why were the other 10 indignant? Uh, my guess is that they were indignant because they also wanted the best seats in Jesus's kingdom, uh, but they didn't, never thought to ask. And they were mad at James and John for beating them to the punch and, and asking, them, uh, asking Jesus before they got to ask it. And so can you imagine Jesus, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be mocked, spit on, scourged, killed, and you got these 12 nincompoops, right? <laughs> Just arguing about themselves, squabbling amongst themselves about which one of them is going to be the greatest. And I just see Jesus shaking his head and saying, I got, I got to keep teaching. I got to keep teaching you guys because you don't get it. So he says, you know, don't be like the Gentiles. Well, what are the Gentiles like? The Gentiles lord their rulership over their subjects, right? The Gentiles, in this case, are the Romans. Now, Romans, they lead by, uh, by domination, uh, by fear, by intimidation, by the threat of the sword. All these things are how uh, the Gentiles, the Romans, rule. And anybody who derives their authority from Rome, like the Herod family, like Pontius Pilate, uh, this is how they lead. And so uh, fear, intimidation, all these things. Jesus is saying you know, that is not how leaders lead, not leaders in the kingdom anyway. Leaders in the kingdom lead through service, through sacrifice, through subordination. That is how greatness uh, is achieved. And so he says, at verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant, your servant. Now, that word servant is the Greek word diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon from. So a deacon is one who voluntarily, willingly serves. Uh, and we should be servants. We should be willing to serve. But then in verse 45, uh, 4, Jesus really ups the ante. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, slave is the Greek word doulos. And doulos means a person who has forfeited all his rights. Uh, he becomes the slave of his master. And so what I want us to see here and not miss is the difference between a servant and a slave. 
Uh, a servant willingly gives up uh, some uh, inconvenience or convenience and, and does something. Uh, he serves at his pleasure. Uh, but a slave forfeits all his rights and, and serves at the whim of his master. And so Jesus is saying, you become a servant of all, yes, but become a slave of all. Give all of yourself, forfeit all of your rights. This is what makes someone great in the kingdom of God. And so uh, we see uh, that there's this contrast between what the disciples think they ought to be doing and what Jesus tells them is what a disciple ought to be doing. And so disciples are supposed to be true followers of Jesus and true followers of Jesus serve. Uh, they are not lording it over as the Gentiles do. And so this is what makes General Flynn's testimony so powerful, right? That he has all authority. He is the leader of this corps. He can eat first if he wants to and tell these privates they can eat in two hours if he wants to tell them that. But instead he gets on the back of the line. That's what makes the, his testimony so powerful. Uh, so General Flynn had all authority. Jesus really had all authority, right? When he, uh, be before he gave the Great Commission, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. And what does Jesus do? Well, he says what he came to do in verse 45. Uh, verse 45, probably the most famous verse in Mark, for the, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many a ransom for many. So when Jesus was here, uh, he poured himself out, right? Physically, he gave everything he had, all his blood, his, his everything for, for people. Uh, before that, he healed them, uh, whether it was sickness or deafness or leprosy or whatever it happened to be. Uh, Jesus did all of those things. Uh, and here in verse 45, he says he came uh, to be a ransom. Uh, what is a ransom? Well, a ransom is, a, is an amount of money or some kind of price paid to buy someone back, usually from slavery. Now, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. We were enslaved to sin. We were on the way to hell, uh, the, the due punishment and penalty for our sins, and yet Jesus ransomed us. He bought us back with his blood. So he was a ransom for us. And uh, he also gave his life to atone for our sins. Uh, to atone means to pay a price for or to satisfy. God had wrath against the sin of the world. Uh, he is angry against sin, uh, but Jesus by his blood atoned for uh, the sin of the world. Uh, and that is interesting because uh, when we get to this little word for at the end of verse 45 here, this little word for uh, seems like nothing to us in English. But in Greek, it's very, very important because Mark used the Greek word anti, A-N-T-I, uh, for this word for. Mark is the only gospel writer who uses this word. And why it's important is because that word anti is the most strong word Mark could have used to talk about the substitutionary nature of what Jesus did in our place. It means in the place of, instead of. So Jesus suffered and died as a ransom for us in our place. That's what that little word for means and why it's so important. And then the last word in the verse there is many. He did this for many. Now we look at this word and we say, does that mean he did it for many but not all? Well, no, that's not what it means. Uh, the many is actually a Hebrew figure of speech. It doesn't mean many but not all. It actually means all who are many. You get that? That's a big difference. It's a big difference because Jesus died for all 
uh, many will receive the benefit, not all will. Those who receive the benefit of Jesus' death are those who believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead. So that is what it means when he said he died for the many. And so uh, we think about this, uh, the, 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 the apostles' response to this. Uh, I would think at this point that they are maybe hanging their heads in shame, uh, that they could ask such a thing uh, in light of all that Jesus had said. We don't know. Mark doesn't report what their, what their actions were afterward. Uh, but I think that they're, they're learning slowly uh, what the true nature of a disciple is. Uh, and so what, uh, what we want to see is that when Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, uh, Jesus is making a, a greater to lesser argument here. What should we do in response to this? Well, if even the Son of Man came not to be served uh, but to serve, well, shouldn't our response be the same? If the greatest one who ever lived should, would do this, well, we ought to do the same, right? Even the Son of Man came to, to, be, to, to uh, serve, not to be served. And so our response is the same. And so James and John, what they show us here is, is the human potential for self-glorification, for self-gratification, for wanting honor and glory uh, from others. And uh, so what we want to pick up on here is how we can avoid falling into that same trap. How can we avoid understand, or not understanding what it truly means to be a disciple and to know what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? And the first thing I would say is this, that, that we need to recognize the condition of our hearts. We need to recognize the condition of our hearts. We are all prone to what James and John asked. We are all susceptible to this kind of uh, desire to, to be loved by people, to be uh, called great in the sight of people, uh, to have honor and glory bestowed on us by people. But Jesus said in another place, in John chapter 5, verse 44, he said, How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And so we see this, this tug of war, right, between wanting the, the, the praise of men, but what we really ought to want is the praise of God. And we don't get the praise of God through what the world thinks is valuable. We get it through what God thinks is valuable, service and sacrifice. So... Uh, how can we guard against this kind of mindset? How can we guard against this kind of selfish attitude? Well, I think making, uh, make, make put, making others first uh, or putting others first a habit is really, uh, this is elementary stuff, right? This is just a very first step uh, that we can take. Uh, we, we have to get in the habit of putting other people first because it's very easy for us uh, to, to be self-absorbed, right? And to think, you know, how can I take care of my needs today? But we just have to be aware that there are so many people around us with so many needs, both physical, uh, emotional, uh, spiritual, so many people with so many needs. And we need to be aware of that. And, and you know, it's going to cost us time and it's going to cost us money uh, to be involved in, in, in making people's lives a little better to, so we have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. But we shouldn't worry about that because God has the ability to replenish anything that we've given, whether it's time, whether it's money, whatever it is. 
But this is going to co uh, cost us a complete change of mindset because we're not used to thinking of others first. We're used to thinking of ourselves first. And, and Jesus is saying, look, you guys, you're not supposed to be like, you know, professional athletes or, or Hollywood actors or corporate jet set executives who have people catering to them all the time. You're supposed to be the ones who are doing the catering. You're supposed to be the ones who are serving. So our purpose is to be like Jesus, who came and used his time to minister to others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we just need to be aware of the needs of those around us and be willing to serve. I mentioned earlier that the title of that book was Leaders Eat Last. And I really think Jesus would like that title because it really ministers to what Jesus was communicating to us here. That as a disciple, we go last, we put other people first. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you uh, for this message. It's just a reminder. We know it as Christians. We know that we are supposed to serve. We know that we're supposed to sacrifice. And, and yet uh, we fail to model it as you did so often, Lord. I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would, would do the work in our hearts today to change our attitudes, Lord, to make us uh, more servant-minded uh, and less self-minded, Lord. Uh, I pray that uh, your word would penetrate us today. Lord, help us look for opportunities to be like Jesus, to be servant-minded and to make a difference in the world, uh, not necessarily to satisfy physical needs, Lord, but that they would give us a path uh, so that we could speak to their spiritual need, Lord, and be able to share the gospel with them and have your kingdom advance uh, by the things that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.